Amen. Well, good evening, wherever you are, uh, wherever you are quarantining or wherever you are, wherever your bunker is, we're, we're glad you're with us um, and decided to join us tonight. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 9, but before we, before we get to Mark chapter 9, I just I want to say a little bit more about this, uh, about this virus, this coronavirus, what we're going through. I know, I know Eric talked a little bit about, uh, about New City Church and, and what we're going to be doing during this time, but I'd like to spend a minute and maybe, maybe just even get a, dive in a little more personally with it. Uh, you know, this, this virus, it has, it has turned a lot of our lives upside down shutting down of, of schools, of, of restaurants, businesses, coffee shops, baseball fields, soccer fields, gyms, the, the effect it's having on the, on the stock market and personal wealth, retirement accounts, the difficulty just in finding basic needs like hand sanitizer and toilet paper, and on and on. A lot of this has exposed what... I'm afraid, are a lot of idols in our, in our lives. You know, we, we live in a country where distractions and luxuries abound. They not only abound, but our, a lot of times our mood depends on having these things in our, in our lives. Don't believe me? Go look up the Consumer Confidence Index after the sermon, of course, but go look it up. It was sky high in January and February. Right now, in March, it's at an all-time low. Not a financial person? All right, fine. Track the mood over the next several weeks on social media. The idea of quarantining, it's, it's kind of novel now, but I guarantee that the mood will decline. I think, social, I think that social media will kind of vet that out. I think we'll see that. So how, how can I be so sure? I'm no economist, I'm no sociologist, but I can look around and, and see that you know, we're, we're placing our faith in the things of this world and not on God. We're placing our faith on things that are temporary and not eternal. I'm an optimist, all right? Almost to a fault, but, but what if? What if all these things that we're so accustomed to having, what if they never came back? How would that change your life? How would that change your outlook? So if you, if you haven't turned off the video yet after this, after this start of just encouragement, then I want you to stick with me because we're going to see how this mood in the Gospel of Mark is, is changing, and it's, it's drastically about to change. So we've been through the first eight chapters of, of the Gospel of Mark, and, and everything is great. And we're, we're starting in today on, on chapter nine, and, and, and things are changing, and they're, they're changing drastically. And as we as a church, as we've been going through this, through this uh, Gospel of Mark, we're, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So far, what we've seen in this book, it, it begins with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus as he begins his, his earthly ministry. We've seen Jesus tempted by Satan. We've seen him calling his disciples to, to follow him, to be a part of his ministry and his mission. We've seen Jesus healing people with diseases and unclean spirits and, 
and, and, and even performing miracles like feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Hordes of people are following Jesus. It's like Jesus is the biggest rock star on earth. And his closest disciples, they're in the band. They're benefiting from the notoriety. Everything's going great. But it's all about to change. It's almost as if unemployment's at 3.5%, the stock market's at an all-time high, and the country is on a peacetime war footing. And then a pandemic hits. Sound familiar? So last week, Eric, he spent time in Mark 7 and 8, and he finished with this, this command from Jesus to, to his disciples to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. And as we, as we take up our cross and we follow Jesus, if we're truly following Jesus, we have no option but to become more like him. We, we emulate him in the way that we act, in the way that we treat others, in the way that we speak. Our desires become more like his desires. The life of a person who follows Jesus necessarily looks different. And, and this is true of, of anything or anyone we, we hitch our wagon to, right? Whatever we, whatever we or whoever we choose to follow, we become more like that. We become more like that person or that thing. So my wife and I, Marianne, we, we have six kids. We have five biological kids, and our youngest little girl is adopted from China. We brought Hattie home when she was 19 months old, and when we, when we adopted her, all she had ever known was the Cantonese language. So when we went to get her, when we went to bring her home, she didn't understand a word that we said to her for, for a while. But she was immersed in the English language as soon as we brought her home. And not just in the English language, but in the English language with a little southern accent. You know, we, we often kind of, we, we hum the tunes that, that we hear. So, you know, today at seven years old, Hattie speaks English as if it were her first language, and she does it with a southern accent. I don't know if there's anything cuter in the world than, than that. And then, so that's cute, right? And then there are things that are not so cute that, that, people, that people do. You remember not so long ago when about 90% of teenage boys tried to, to emulate Justin Bieber by getting a Bieber do? Right, enough said on that, right? Not everything's a great idea. We sometimes regret things that we do, right? Again, the idea is what we follow, we become. And there, there's no shortage of distractions for our affections. And that's when we need to be on guard. The more we behold this world with its fleeting pleasures, the more, like, the more we become like the world. But the more we behold Jesus and his eternal pleasures, the more we become like him. The more we follow Jesus, the more we are changed into his likeness. So with that as a backdrop, we're going to dive into Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 2 through 13 today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, the passage is going to be right here on the screen behind me. In this passage of scripture, we have the transfiguration of Jesus. So this, this is kind of a tough text. So whether, you, whether you're, you're a Christian and 
you've been in church all your life or you've never stepped foot in a church, this passage can be a little bit confusing, but bear with me. We're going to read it. We're going to break it down. I think by the end, we're gonna, it's going to make a lot more sense to us. So let's read the text, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things. And how, it is, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer in many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. All right, so here's our, here's our main idea that uh, we're going we're gonna to go through tonight, to kind of take us through our, our time together. When we see Jesus for, for who he is, we will have an insatiable desire to become more like him. When we see Jesus for who he is, we will have an insatiable desire to become more like him. This, this desire to become more like Jesus encapsulates the Christian life. Once a person decides that, that they will follow Jesus, the remainder of their life is a, is a process of sanctification or becoming more like Jesus. Becoming more like him of, in every aspect of our lives. So as we go through this scripture, we're going we're gonna to break it up into three different points, three different sections as we go through it tonight. So section number one, point number one, Jesus is glorified on the mountain. Point two, Jesus is glorified by his father. And then point three, Jesus is glorified through the cross. Once we unpack the scripture, we're going we're gonna to finish with our response given these realities. So, so here we go. Point number one, Jesus is glorified on the mountain. You know, one of the, one of the first things we see happening on this mountaintop is Jesus having a conversation with, with Moses and Elijah. And, you know, I think of all the people in the Old Testament who could have been in this scene, who could have been on this mountain with them, why Moses and Elijah? I, we, don't, we don't get the answer directly from this text that we read, but these two men represented two major sections of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. While both of these men were, were prophets, Moses was the one to whom God revealed his law. In, in Exodus 33, if we go back to the Old Testament, back to Exodus 33, when Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and he begged God to show him his glory, 
to reveal himself to Moses. Moses, he wanted to see God's face, to, to fix his gaze upon him. But God told Moses that no one could see his face and live. Think of it this way. If you were to go outside and you were to, to take, a, take a glimpse of the sun, if you, if you stare at the sun for more than a couple of seconds, you can do serious damage to your eyes. God made it clear to Moses that to see his face would place Moses in mortal danger. So what did God do? Well, he, he protected Moses by hiding him in the cleft of a rock. And as, as God passed by Moses, he, he got a glimpse of God, not too much, but enough so that Moses' face was glowing when he descended from the mountain, all because he had been in the presence of God. When he came down from the mountain, the Israelites were afraid because of the way he looked, the way he was changed by being in the presence of God. And they should have been afraid. They were, they were a sinful people. And Moses' face was shining with the brilliance of God's glory. So think about it this way. From this example with Moses, we can conclude that Moses' shining face reflected God's divine glory. It's as if he were looking in a mirror, and instead of reflecting himself, he reflected God's image. With Elijah, we can, we can say the same, that he reflected God's divine glory in his pronouncements of God's word to the people. Elijah was a prophet, and he did what prophets do. They deliver messages from God to his people. There's probably no better example than this, or maybe even my favorite story about Elijah than, than the time that Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you aren't familiar with the story, let me give you a quick, quick recap. So Ahab was the king of Israel. Ahab was an evil king, and he promoted the worship of Baal the Canaanite god of rain. Elijah, being a prophet of the one true God, confronted Ahab in this, in this sinfulness, in this worship of Baal, and he, he challenged Ahab to, to take the 450 prophets of Baal and meet him on top of Mount Carmel. So here we go, all the people, they come to Mount Carmel, they go to the mountain, and they build two altars, one for Baal, the Canaanite god of rain, false idol, and then one for the Lord God. And the, the deal was, the, the 450 prophets of Baal, they were going to sit there, they were going to pray to Baal. They prayed all day to Baal to bring fire from heaven down onto this altar and set the altar on fire. They did it all day. And they failed. They not only failed, but they failed miserably. And then it was Elijah's turn. Elijah prayed a simple prayer. He said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. At that very moment, Fire came down from heaven and torched the altar. 
And when the people saw what the Lord God had done, they, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people repented at that time. Both Moses and Elijah, they both reflected the divine glory of God, but only by God's grace, not because of anything they brought to the table. There was nothing within either of these men that reflected the divine glory of God on their own. Both of them were dependent on God for his glory. So keep that in the back of your mind as we now go back to Mark chapter 9, all right? So here we have Jesus, who for the eight, first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, he's, he's been in large part engaged in his earthly ministry. As Eric mentioned last week, we've, we've kind of turned a corner in the, in the Gospel of Mark and in the story where, where Jesus, he is now focused squarely on the cross and what he ultimately came to do as a suffering servant. But what qualifies Jesus to be this, this suffering servant who would go to the cross? Well, we, we have the answer we have the answer in this text. It's in his transfiguration. So God didn't, God didn't have to wait. He didn't have to wait for or search all humanity over thousands of years to find a man who was pleasing to him. Scripture shows us that Jesus already existed in personal form before he took on human nature. We, we see it in Scripture. We see it in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Yeah, these, these verses, they don't say that Jesus was made like you and me. Instead, they say that all things were made through Him. In other words, He made all things. Jesus was not only present at creation, He was creating and who has the power to create but God himself? In chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the church in, in Colossae, he, he describes Jesus in the following way. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Paul, Paul's echoing John's proclamation that Jesus created the world and everything in it. Not only that, he, he's using different wording. He, he says, by him, meaning Jesus did it. There's no ambiguity there. Later in that same verse, he says, all, three, all, all things were created through him. Again, Paul sets Jesus as the one who is creating. So one more, one more. The author of the book of Hebrews says in chapter one, verse three, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, on, on this mountaintop, when, when Jesus was being transfigured, he wasn't, he wasn't reflecting the radiance of God like Moses and Elijah on the mountain. He was reflecting his own radiance. Jesus was revealing his own divine glory to Peter, James, and John. It was, it was just in the last chapter, it was in Mark chapter 8, that, that Peter recognized Jesus as the Son of God. 
And it was at this very moment that, that Jesus confirmed Peter's assumption. Not only does Jesus confirm this through his transfiguration, but, but God the Father does as well. That takes us to point two. Jesus is glorified by his Father. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. If this sounds familiar, it should. This is the statement from God. The statement from God is, is almost identical to what God said when Jesus was baptized. This time, however, God is saying it when Jesus' face is literally glowing. Have you, have you ever been to a theater production? If, if you have, then you'll know that the, the crew shines a spotlight on the actor that they want you to pay attention to at that very moment. It's, it's as if they were, they were saying, hey, you don't want to miss this. Look over here. This is important. Focus your attention right here. On this mountain, Jesus is shining like he has a million spotlights on him. And God says, this is my beloved son. It's as if God is, is saying to, these, to, to Peter, James, and John, he is the object of my affection. I admire and cherish him. I love him. God loves Jesus. He delights in him. He is pleased with his son. When God looks at Jesus, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes all that he sees in him. These are, these are astounding statements. Nowhere else in Scripture does God put someone in the same category as Jesus in these verses. God is, in effect here, putting Jesus in a category that is equal with himself. Once God affirms Jesus, he instructs Peter, James, and John to listen to him. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, I, I read this, I can't think, I can't help but think of Peter, right? This is, Peter is this disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He's so quick to speak, to give his opinion. It's almost as if God is speaking directly to Peter, and he's saying, Peter, be quiet. Listen to my son. He's about to tell you something important. God's command to Peter picks up on Moses' prophecy of a coming prophet back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Jesus is the only one to come who is uniquely qualified to fulfill this prophecy. He is the prophet promised by Moses. Jesus is the pinnacle of prophecy. Jesus is the, he's the pinnacle of prophecy. Everything that happens in the Old Testament points to his coming at this point in history. Every time the prophets would speak of the Messiah in the Old Testament, they were speaking of Jesus, his, his birthplace, his being born of a virgin, the way he lived his life, his ministry, his suffering and his death on a cross, all prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That takes us to point three, and that is Jesus is glorified through the cross. 
Jesus is glorified through the cross. Mark's account of this scene doesn't, doesn't tell us what Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about, but the Gospel of Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, Luke says that Jesus was talking to Moses and Elijah about his death, about Jesus' death. In the original Greek language, the word for death was translated exodus. It's the same word that was used to describe the exodus of the Israelites from from Egypt. In the exodus of the Old Testament, God used Moses to deliver his people from from slavery, from their captivity. But now God sent Jesus to deliver his people from their sin. So So we can say that the The greater and final exodus happened as Jesus freed us from the slavery of our sin. The greater and final exodus happened as Jesus freed us from the slavery of our sin. When they were descending from the mountain, Jesus instructed Peter, James, and John to tell no one about what they had seen until his resurrection. But but why? This was, this was incredible. Why would he not want anyone to know? The, the full meaning of what they had just seen was, was just a glimpse of what was to come. Jesus, Jesus was being strategic here. He didn't need everyone to see this. Instead, he wanted a few to witness his coming glorified self to strengthen them for what was to come. They were going to need it. Regardless of the meaning, can you imagine the questions that, that, that these disciples of Jesus must have had after what they had experienced, the way Jesus looked, the fact that Moses and Elijah were having what I would almost kind of think is a casual conversation with Jesus. That's not enough. God speaking directly to them from a cloud. It's like a trifecta of mind-blowing mind-blowing occurrences. They did have questions, and they started asking Jesus about various things as they were descending from the mountain. But what I find interesting is that, is that they, they went straight to the scriptures. I, I'm afraid if this had been me, I, I, I probably would have been so blown away that I would have, I would have said to Jesus, Jesus, what was that? What, what just happened? No, instead, they ask about what scripture said about Elijah coming first. This, this whole scene was, was, was probably a little bit unclear for them for a number of reasons, right? But, but they knew what the prophet Malachi had said at the end of the Old Testament. So Malachi chapter 4, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This is how the Old Testament ends. I mean, these are the final verses of the Old Testament before God seemingly goes silent for 400 years. The Jewish people, they've been waiting 400 years for Elijah to come back and usher in the Messiah. But here's Jesus. He's, he's been alive for about three decades. He's been 
in his earthly ministry for about three years. And, and now they have this encounter with Elijah on the mountain. It was, it was backwards, seemingly, from how Scripture laid it out. The chronology was, was off in Jesus' disciples' minds. So what does Jesus do? He, he explains that the chronology was exactly right and that Elijah already came. Read, 12, read verses 12 and 13 again. It says, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So Jesus says it isn't a chronological problem. It's actually much deeper than that. In another passage, Jesus, he explains that John the Baptist is Elijah who would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And, and that may be all well and good, but at this point, John the Baptist had already been beheaded. And so how is, how is John the Baptist the Elijah who would restore all things if he's been beheaded? I mean, someone who's been beheaded doesn't exactly give confidence that a great restoration was on the verge of happening or so the disciples thought. Jesus had to help the disciples understand that the kingdom of God was not being ushered in in the way they thought it would be. They expected, expected a, a messianic forerunner, Elijah, and then a Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of, of God on this earth marked, this kingdom would be marked by triumph and power. What they didn't understand is that God's kingdom was coming in a very different way. God's kingdom was coming in a very different way. The, the promised Elijah, John the Baptist, did have a ministry of, of restoration, repentance and restoration. He announced that the kingdom of heaven was near, and he called people to repent of their sins. In the end, John's ministry led to his imprisonment, suffering, and death. John's death was what Jesus referred to when he said they did to him whatever they pleased. Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was coming. He was preparing them for his own suffering and death. You know, kind of, kind of lost in this scene on the mountaintop is, is Peter, Peter asking Jesus if, if he wanted him to build a tent for Jesus and for, for Moses and for Elijah. You know, another, another name for tent is tabernacle. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where, where, where the people would go to worship God. Peter, recognizing the, the gravity of this situation, he had, having the, he had the best intentions, right? But, but, but having a tabernacle built for Jesus on this mountaintop would completely defeat the purpose of Jesus coming. The, you know, the the vast majority of, of world religions today and throughout history, quite frankly, view the human experience and salvation as, as climbing a mountain to get to God. If, if I do enough things, if I do enough things that are good, I get to ascend this mountain where one day I'll get to God. Christianity sees it differently. 
we would say God knows we could never do, we could never do enough good in our lives to, to work our way up the mountain to him. So knowing that, he sent Jesus to come down the mountain to meet us where we are. Jesus came down the mountain to be nailed up on a cross. Jesus came down the mountain to be nailed up on a cross. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't go to the cross and die to be laid in a tomb. If, if that were the rest of the story, then the story of Jesus would be just another story of, of a man who did good in the world. Sure, he would, he would be remembered fondly as a, as a good person who, who opposed the power structure of the day. But if that's it, then that would make Jesus nothing more than another dead freedom fighter. The story of Jesus doesn't end with his death and burial. In fact, the story of Jesus doesn't end with his resurrection. I think John sums it up best in the final verse of his gospel. He says in, in John chapter 21, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> what, what an incredible statement. Can you imagine everything you've ever done in your life written down in the world not being able to contain the books that would be written? I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get in bed at night and I, I wonder if I was even productive that day. And I think that's even more now with quarantining and, and social distancing. I, I, feel like, I feel like I'm getting very little done. I don't feel productive. But Jesus, if, if creating the world and everything in it were all that Jesus did, then it would be enough to fill the world. If his influence as traced through the Old Testament were all that he did, then, then that would be enough. If the miracles and, and, and teaching we've studied in the Gospel of Mark over the past weeks were all Jesus did, then that would be enough. These things may have been enough to fill books that could fill the world, but, but none of these things could make us right before a holy and perfect God. None of these incredible miraculous things that Jesus did could save us from our sin. Thankfully, God did not stop with these, with these things. He sent Jesus to, to live a life free from sin so that he could go to the cross and, and be a perfect sacrifice for you and for me. Jesus, Jesus died and was, and was raised from, from the dead three days later. Forget everything else Jesus did. If all he did was go to the cross to save your soul, would that be enough for you to recognize him as your savior? Would it be enough for you to lay down your own life for him as he laid down his life for you? You know, there are things that happen throughout our, our lives that, that serve as, as markers where we, where we see the world for what it is. They change us. They change how we, how we think and, and how we live. Some of them are, are spiritual. 
and some are not. You know, the, 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 day, I, the day I understood the gospel and, and realized my need for Jesus was a spiritual marker in my life. September 11th, 2001 was another marker in my life and probably in your life as well, where I saw the world from a new perspective. I think we can all agree that this, this coronavirus is one of those markers. You know, we, we don't have the luxury of hindsight to, to see how it's going to change us, but, but we know it will. We can see it already. Instead of, instead of waiting to see how it changes us, what if we got out in front of it? How much different would this whole experience be for us if we prayed for God to use us during this time for his glory? What if we said, God, you are sovereign over this virus and over my life. Use it to help me grow closer to you. Use it to reveal my blind spots and the idols I cling to. Use it to make me completely dependent on you. If you aren't a Christian, I, I, would just, I would just ask you to pray today. Pray today and ask God to show you his glory. Ask him to show you who he is. Your life will never be the same. If you are a Christian, are you asking God how you can thrive in this time and glorify him? Drawing from the book of Esther, we, we are alive for such a time as this. We're here for a reason. Let's not waste it. Do you need to repent today? Do you need to ask forgiveness for forgetting that God is sovereign over this virus? Do you need to repent for, or for mourning over the idols that you've lost as a result of it. Here's how I want to close. Yeah, thinking about this whole virus thing and, and our, our reaction to it, I, I can't help but think of St. Patrick. And this, this, is, this is kind of appropriate because St. Patrick's Day was just this past week. St. Patrick was a, was a missionary who knew Jesus, but experienced great suffering. His, his story is, is very different than the way we celebrate his legacy today. He was, he was taken into slavery as a youth. And then as an adult, he returned to the people who enslaved him to share the gospel with them. Here's an excerpt from the prayer of St. Patrick and how he viewed his relationship with Jesus, how important it was to keep Jesus front and center in his life. Here's what St. Patrick says. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in, the, in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are holy and you are mighty. Lord, you are sovereign today, you were sovereign yesterday, and you will be sovereign tomorrow. Lord, we know, God, that this coronavirus, Lord, we know that it is something that is going to change our lives. Lord, I pray right now, I pray, God, that for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that through this they will seek you during this time. Lord, I pray, God, that they will come to know you as their Savior. Lord, I pray for the church during this time. I pray, God, that you would allow us to reflect your divine glory in our communities to a world that desperately needs to know your gospel and who you are and how you love. It's in your holy, precious name, God, that we make this prayer. Amen.